Well, we want to turn our attention to God's Word now, and uh, if you do have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 18. We are returning today to our series in the book of Genesis. The series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and throughout the series we are exploring everything that happened in the life of Abraham. It's actually been a month since we left off in this series or from this series. The last time we were in Genesis, Pat led us in a study of the first half of Genesis chapter 18. And if you remember, the first half of Genesis 18 is all good news. These visitors come to visit uh, Abraham. They announce it's two angels and the Lord, and they announce to him that, you know, in a year, Sarah is going to give birth to a son. And even more than that, the, the first half of the chapter shows us that God is the friend of sinners. So our month-long hiatus from the series uh, was due in part to Easter. We spent the last two weeks exploring the events of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And then the two weeks before that, we spent our time in Isaiah chapter 40. And part of the reason we turned our attention to Isaiah chapter 40 is because in the midst of this crisis, it's important for us all to remember where true north is. And I told you at the time that during this season, it's important for us not just to look outward at our circumstances or to look inward at ourselves, but instead to look upward at our God. So that's part of the reason that we spent our time in Isaiah 40 and took a break from Genesis 18. The other part of the reason, or the other reason why we took a break from our series, is because the passages that we're going to be looking at these next two weeks are taken up with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment on those cities. And at the beginning of this pandemic, I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to lead with. This is not to say that we shy away from talking about God's judgment as a church. We believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. But I do think that sometimes we are too quick to try to interpret cultural events and make them fit into the timeline of biblical history, or even we're just too quick to speculate on what it is that God might be saying to us in the midst of all this. It's interesting to see some of these developments in the culture at large around us. I've seen posts from some environmental groups saying that the coronavirus is some kind of judgment or even revenge from Mother Nature for our mistreatment of the environment. So even some people who find the idea of a God who judges to be intolerable are seemingly okay with a universe or a planet that does just that. There have been lots of others expressing opinions about what God might be saying in the midst of this crisis. Now, Jesus actually addressed this. Not the coronavirus in particular, but the kind of speculation that seems to go hand in hand with catastrophes of various shapes and sizes. In Luke chapter 13, we read these words. There were some present at that very time who told him, that's told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? 
No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus points to these two local tragedies that would have been well known to his hearers, and he helps them understand how they ought to think about them. His point in both examples is the same. While we should be wary of trying to speculate about, you know, why this place got hit with a tornado and this one didn't, or why this country got hit with a tsunami and this one didn't, or why it is that we're all now dealing with this pandemic, we ought to take all such events as reminders that our lives could be taken from us at any moment and that we'd better be in a right relationship with God. Now, there are events recorded for us in Scripture that tell us clearly that God does execute judgment on the earth and some of the reasons for that judgment. And the passage we're looking at today does that for us. So with that as a bit of a backdrop, let's read Genesis chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 16 to 33. This is God's Word, and this is what it says. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to, to see them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham... What he has promised to him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether what they have done, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right or just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city... I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, Lord, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. 
He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So many questions, right? There's the anthropomorphic language where God is doing some self-deliberating and then he needs to go down and see if what is happening in Sodom is as bad as what he's heard. Then there's the questions that arise from Abraham's seeming bargaining session with God. I mean, is that how prayer works? Is there a magic formula? Is there a certain number of times that you ought to ask for something? Does God change his mind when we pray? Then there are the questions about Sodom. What was the nature of the sin or the sins of the people of Sodom that caused God to purpose to destroy it? And sometimes when there are lots of questions worth exploring, I like to narrow things down by grouping them into categories or headings. So I'm going to group what we learned from this passage under three main headings, and I've kind of given them to you in the title, but the three headings, the three things we learn about here are rebellious people, a praying prophet, and a gracious and righteous judge. So this passage, firstly, then, has something to teach us about rebellious people. Chapter 18 opens with the three visitors appearing to Abraham. Two of them were angels. The third was a theophany, a manifestation of the Lord himself. And when the three visitors appeared to Abraham at the beginning of the chapter, it was clear they came to bless him. They came to confirm the promises that God had made previously to him. But this passage helps us understand that the visitors actually had a dual purpose in their visit. They came to pronounce a blessing on Abraham, and they also came to pronounce a curse upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 20 gives us the reasons why. Verse 20 says, Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. So twice in that verse, God says that the outcry against Sodom has reached him. The word outcry is an interesting word in this context. It's a word that we find multiple times in the Old Testament. As part of the law concerning the vulnerable of society, God said this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. In another law, as part of the protection for mistreated workers, the law said this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who's poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you, same word, to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. We know in the book of Exodus that the people of Israel spent 400 years being enslaved in Egypt. And as the precursor to God rescuing them from their slavery, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
So Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna said that the word outcry connotes the anguished cry of the oppressed and the agonized plea of a victim in the face of some great injustice. So the people of Sodom were a brutal people. They mistreated others. The next chapter will show us that this is not the kind of place you would want to go and visit, especially not at night. And now this outcry against Sodom has come to God. The verse says that the outcry against Sodom has come to God and that their sin is very grave. So what exactly was the nature of their sin? Well, I think the first instinct for most of us is to think of their sin as being sexual in nature. The next chapter is going to show their, or to demonstrate their depravity in that regard. The word sodomy comes from the description of the people of Sodom that we find in Genesis chapter 19. This is similar to the way the first century Greeks invented the word Corinthianize as a euphemism for sexual immorality. The city of Corinth was so well known for its loose sexual standards that it became defined by it. And that's what happened in the city of Sodom as well. But if we think of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah only along the lines of sexual sin, we actually miss the extent of their depravity. Here's how the prophet Ezekiel later described the sin of Sodom. He said, Behold... This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Now, this is not to take away from the fact that sexual activity outside the bounds of God's design is sin, but it is important to remember that the essence of sin is much deeper than that. The essence of sin is rebellion against God. And that rebellion manifests itself in a number of different ways. Now, back in chapter 13, there was actually a little bit of foreshadowing with regards to the people of Sodom. There it said, Abraham settled, or Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. But I think even as we hear these descriptions of Sodom, many of us can't help but think that it couldn't have been as bad as all that. I mean, that was Abraham's reaction as well. Look, I know there's some bad apples, but surely there's some good ones too. Now, in his heart, I think he knows that God is right. But he can't quite bring himself to admit it. That's why he starts out thinking, well, look, if I could find just 50 righteous people in the city. But then as he bargains with God, he comes down to the number of just wondering, look, if I could just find 10 of them. And spoiler alert for next week, he will find a grand total of zero. And this, by the way, was not just true of Sodom. Rebellion against God is a universal human condition. The psalmist said it this way, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes sums up the human condition with this succinct description. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The book of Romans states it clearly. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Or again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we are rebels at heart. And the people of Sodom were particularly rebellious. So we learned something about rebellious people. Second thing we learn about is is we learn about a praying prophet. Now, a praying priest might be a better description. I mean, this is the role that Abraham plays here. He hears what the Lord says about Sodom and Gomorrah and how he's going to wipe the cities out. And he immediately begins to make intercession for them. He's acting as a go-between for them. And the language of verses 22 and 23 is interesting as Abraham engages in this dialogue with God. Verse 22 says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. And then verse 23 begins, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham was already standing in the presence of God, but then it says that he drew near. So what what exactly is that describing? Is it that Abraham was standing at some distance from God and then came closer? Was this a social or physical distancing of sorts? Well, the language here is actually the language of a courtroom. And drawing near in this context is the way a person, a lawyer, might approach the bench to make a legal plea for his client. And what a plea it is that Abraham makes here. It almost reads like a haggling session at an outdoor bazaar, doesn't it? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So Abraham starts out with 50 people, getting God to agree with him that, look, if there are 50 righteous people, I will not wipe out the city. And then once Abraham has that commitment from God in his back pocket, he starts working him down. Well, well, what if it's just 45? What if it's 40, 30, 20? What if it's just 10? And interestingly, this is actually the first recorded prayer we have in the Bible. And Abraham's prayer is a model prayer for us in many ways. I mean, there's a mixture of humility and boldness in it. He seems to understand his place and God's place. There's a persistence or a tenacity in his plea. He just keeps on asking. It's also a prayer that's based on the righteous character of God. He's asking God to be and do who he has revealed himself to be, the righteous judge of all the earth. There's also a a, a passion about his prayer, a sense of earnestness as he pleads for the people. This is not a sort of dispassionate kind of praying through a list the way that many of us fall into. Abraham pleads with God for the salvation of Sodom. 
Now, the cynical part of us might think, well, the only, way, the only reason that he cares so much for the city of Sodom is because his nephew Lot lives there. And Abraham doesn't yet actually have an heir. Lot's the closest thing he, he's got, so maybe that's why he's so passionate about this. It's not actually how the passage reads. Abraham knows that Sodom is filled with people who are living in rebellion against God. His plea is that God would have mercy on the city for the sake of a few. And I find myself deeply challenged by Abraham's prayer. I wonder sometimes what kind of heart we actually have for lost people. Now, there are different responses that we can have towards those who are hostile to the gospel or those who are living in open rebellion against God. And sometimes our attitude can be like James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, when they encountered opposition. Luke chapter 9 records this incident. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, you may have felt that way at times. I mean, you want the lightning bolt to come from heaven instantly in judgment. You want instantaneous judgment. Abraham presents us with a better model. It's actually a posture we see in God's servants all through the the Bible. So when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, the rest of the people started making a golden calf and worshiping it. God said He was going to wipe them out. Listen to how Moses interceded on their behalf. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. See, Moses knows the failure of his people. He knows their sin. He knows they've sinned against God and they deserve nothing but judgment. But he prays for God's mercy upon them. In a similar way, the prophet Amos was shown a series of visions of the kind of judgment that was going to come on Israel. And here's how he responded in the first two of those visions. He said, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. See, Amos doesn't deny that his countrymen have sinned against God, that they deserve judgment, but he knows they cannot bear the judgment that God is promising to bring. And so he intercedes for them. For a New Testament example, we could think of the Apostle Paul and the way he felt about his 
countrymen who rejected Jesus. Paul said this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So how many of us have a heart like that? I mean, how many of us have unceasing anguish and sorrow in our hearts for those who are headed to a Christless eternity? It's so easy not to have a heart like that, isn't it? It's so easy to have a self-righteous attitude. And if we want to root out that kind of self-righteousness within us, the best way we can do that is to pray for those around us. To pray that God's mercy would be made clear to them and evident to them. I think that's part of the reason Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray even for those who persecute us. If the coming judgment is as severe as the Bible tells us it is, we all ought to fall on our knees and plead with God for mercy for those who are lost. So we learn about rebellious people, we learn about a praying prophet, and then finally we learn about a gracious and righteous judge. I mentioned this earlier, but some of the language that's used in reference to God here is anthropomorphic. And we shouldn't be thrown off or distracted by that. When verse 21 says that God is going to go down and see if the people of Sodom are as bad as he's heard, it doesn't say that because he lacks information. This is something we see all through Genesis. So in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, God comes to them and he says, where are you? And when he asks that question, it's not because he doesn't know. In fact, he knows that they now think they have to hide from him. In chapter 4, after Cain kills his brother Abel, God comes and says, where is your brother? And when he asks that question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer to it. In fact, when Cain tries to dodge the question, God says, look, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me. In chapter 11, when the people build this tower of Babel, this tower, they think, stretches into the heavens, it says there that God has to come down to see it. So what is the point of using the anthropomorphic language? Well, the point of using that kind of language is to help us understand that whatever God does will not be some kind of knee-jerk reaction. Everything God does is based on a thorough and accurate knowledge of the situation. He knows what's happening in Sodom. The visit of the angels there will simply confirm it. Now, as for God's righteousness, His being a righteous judge, it's the whole premise of the prayer that Abraham prays. Far be it from you to do what is unjust. Will the, will, will the judge of all the earth sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham knows God is just. He will do what is right. So what does that look like? What does it mean to say that God is a righteous judge? Well, it means that he will render right judgments. On the one hand, it means that God does not punish people unfairly. 
God's judgment on Sodom was not a divine overreaction. On the other hand, to say that God is a righteous judge means that he will judge evil. He will execute justice. He cannot be bribed to look the other way or to ignore sin. He's a righteous judge. Now, the idea of God as a judge is not a popular idea today. I mean, we like the idea of God as a shepherd. He's one who cares for his flock. Or we like the idea of God as a friend, one who walks alongside us and guides us in difficult times. But the idea of God as a judge seems so stern. And as a result, many people have a distorted view of God. J.I. Packer once said that a half-truth masquerading as the full truth becomes a complete untruth. Many people settle for a half-truth when it comes to God. They take the things they like and discard the rest. This is why we need to make sure that we take our picture of who God is from what the Bible tells us and not just from what we might imagine God to be like. In reality, the Bible helps us understand both the justice and the grace of God. Dane Ortland says it like this, The wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with one another. It's not like a seesaw, one diminishing to the degree that the other is held up. Rather, the two rise and fall together. And the more robust one's felt understanding of the just wrath of Christ against all that is evil, both around us and within us, the more our felt understanding of His mercy. See, it's only when we understand God's justice and His wrath against sin that we can properly understand God's mercy. And without a righteous judge, without an understanding that there's someone we can appeal to, like Abraham does here, who will set things right, we would descend into absolute chaos. I mean, imagine, if you will, that a young girl has been abducted and abused, and then murdered and discarded. And imagine if the perpetrator of that crime is then brought into the court before a judge. And as he appears before the judge, the judge says, you know, I'm a pretty laid-back guy. I don't take this law stuff all that seriously. In fact, I like to think of myself as more of a loving judge. You know, everyone makes mistakes, charges dismissed. How do you think that girl's family would feel about that? How would you feel about that? I mean, I think we would all rise up and say, that's injustice. What kind of God would God be if he did not judge? See, God's judgment on Sodom, was a righteous judgment. But we also see something of God's grace here. So the Lord goes along with Abraham as they bargain together, or as they talk together. He agrees with Abraham at every point along the way, for the sake of 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. I will not destroy the city. But we know what's going to happen. We know that when the two visitors come to Sodom, they're not going to encounter anyone who's receptive to their message. I mean, even after the announcement that the Lord is going to wipe out the city, 
Even Lot's own sons-in-law laugh it off. His wife is too attached to the city to leave it, and Lot and his daughters basically have to be dragged out of the city by the scruff of their necks. So we look at when we come to that judgment, we, we can read it and say, well, where's the grace in all of this? How can we possibly speak about grace in a passage that is filled with judgment, or even this one that just announces judgment is coming? Well, as we're thinking about grace, I think the first thing we need to remember is the way God showed His grace to Abraham. Look back now at verses 18 and 19 in our passage. And those verses say this, "...seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice." so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So why was it that Abraham was a recipient of God's blessing and not his wrath? Was it because Abraham was morally morally superior to everyone else? Or was it because God set his affections on him and chose him? Now, if we had any thoughts that God must have chosen Abraham because he was such an upstanding, moral individual, those thoughts should be dispelled by what is said in Joshua chapter 24, where it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That was Abraham's life before God chose him. Abraham's whole life is grace. But we also see grace as we look at the way God deals with Sodom. I mean, God's acceptance of Abraham's terms is a bit staggering, isn't it? If just ten righteous people can be found in the entire city, the city will be spared. That's right. This this should remind us that sometimes God withholds His judgment on the many for the sake of a few. I mean, who knows how often it is the case that the presence of the righteous is the only thing holding back God's swift judgment. That is grace. But even as we fast forward to the actual judgment in the next chapter, we should take note of something significant that we are told, and it is all of grace. After the city is destroyed and Lot and his daughters have escaped, we read this in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So why were Lot and his daughters spared? Why was it that they escaped the destruction the rest of the city experienced? Well, it tells us because God remembered Abraham. See, that's grace. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can somehow have enough faith or be righteous enough for your unbelieving family members. But I think this does point us in the direction of how it is that any one of us can escape God's judgment for our sin and be made right with God. 
See, our standing before God is not based on our righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness for us. Theologians refer to this as the great exchange. The New Testament puts it this way, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange is that God lays our sins on Christ and punishes them justly in Him, And in Christ's obedient death, God fulfills and vindicates His righteousness and then imputes or credits His righteousness to us. Our sin on Christ, His righteousness on us. See, it's at the cross where the justice and the grace of God meet. And it's because of that that we have any standing at all before God. So we had to thank Him for His grace. We had to pray that His grace would be made evident, especially at a time like this, to those around us. So join me in praying that. Father, we do want to thank You for Your grace. We thank You that we can have confidence in who You are, that You are the judge of all the earth, the righteous judge of all the earth. And Lord, we know that there are many around us who scoff at this very idea, even in the midst of a crisis like this, who might scoff at the idea. But Lord, we pray for your mercy. We pray that as they maybe hear for the first time or maybe hear again a message that they've rejected in the past, that there would be some who would soften their hearts, who would bend their knee, and who would respond to your great grace, that you allow us You are a righteous judge that you must deal with sin and punish it, but you allow that punishment, you allowed that punishment to be taken by Jesus in our place. And then in exchange for that, you gave us his righteousness. Lord, could we just all rejoice in that today? We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.